Today on Happy Sad Confused, Sam Elliott talks his award-worthy turn in A Star is Born. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome back to the show. Welcome to an episode starring the one, the only, the man with that iconic mustache and that even more iconic voice, uh, the great Sam Elliott. What a treat. Uh, If you have not seen A Star is Born yet... Uh, get with the program, guys. This is the movie everybody is talking about, and rightfully so. It is now out everywhere. Uh, that soundtrack, that music, those performances, they are the talk everywhere. And I, and I think they will be for the next bunch of months. Right now, if there is a frontrunner, and maybe I'm jinxing it, but if there is a frontrunner for the Oscars, uh, put your money on A Star is Born. Picture, actress, actor, and yes, uh, supporting actor, Sam Elliott. I would not be surprised, certainly for him to get a nomination, and uh, I would not complain if he comes away with a gold statue for his performance in A Star is Born. Uh, A real treat to get a, uh, he is kind of an icon, Sam Elliott. He's uh, he's the, you know, the sage-like presence in The Big Lebowski. He's he's the man who uh, kicked ass with Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse. And he is, uh, in the case of A Star is Born, Bradley Cooper's wise older brother, and it's a, it's a small role. It's not, you know, he's only in maybe a half dozen scenes, but man, uh, does he register in this and has some of the most emotional moments in the film. And he's just fantastic. This conversation, equally fantastic. Uh, Sam Elliott, you get the sense he does not suffer fools lightly. He, uh, he talks the talk and he walks the walk. He says what he feels. Uh, we talk about that and how that maybe even got him, got him into trouble early on in his career. Uh, I love, you know, these actors, I love the actors that just, you can feel, um, they don't have a filter. They talk from the heart and, uh, someone like Sam Elliott, who's been doing this a long while, about 50 years, uh, he doesn't give a crap anymore in a way, you know, he'll say what he wants and he'll suffer the consequences if he needs to. But, uh, this was, this was a real treat, a real honor to, to sit with Sam Elliott for the better part of an hour. And I think you guys are going to enjoy this. Um, just to update you on my, the, the rest of my shenanigans in my life. Uh, if you were at New York comic-con, uh, at the Jacob Javits center, uh, you might've seen me doing my thing. I moderated a bunch of panels. What a blast. Oh, I think most of these panels actually are available online. If you want to go back and look at them, sometimes without the exclusive footage, because I think they remove that for those that weren't in the room. But uh, last Friday night, I moderated the Netflix and Chills panel, which uh, featured four different shows. It was The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. It was The Dark Crystal. It was The Haunting of Hill House and Umbrella Academy. And um, it was... It was wild. It was a big night. It was hours of, of interviews, massive casts, Mary J. Blige, Ellen Page, everybody, uh, everybody was there. The green room, you should have seen it, was about 45 people, not including publicists, handlers, managers. And uh, it was one of the more intense moderating evenings of my life, but I, I, I had so much fun doing it. Uh, the next day, I moderated the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse panel in which they showed the first 35 minutes of the new animated Spider-Man film that opens December 14th. Uh, and guys, this is going to make a gajillion dollars. I guarantee it. It is excellent. Uh, hardcore Spider-Man fans are going to love it. Uh, it st- stars for the first time Miles Morales. Shamik Moore plays Miles Morales. And not only that, it has like 
half a dozen Spider-Man incarnations voiced by the likes of Jake Johnson and Nicolas Cage. <laughs> it's really cool. Uh, the animation is gorgeous. The panel was super fun. Lord and Miller of 21 Jump Street fame were there. Jake Johnson was there. Shamik Moore was there. Had a blast with that one. And then on Sunday, talk about a blast from the past. I reunited with some of my Twilight gang. Uh, it'd been a few years, but we celebrated the 10th anniversary of the release of the first Twilight film. And I moderated a panel with Catherine Hardwick, the director, Kellen Lutz, uh, Eddie Gathegi, and Jackson Rathbone. And it was, it was surreal. It really was. It was like no time had passed. Uh, these guys were the same as I remembered them. Uh, they seemed to get a kick out of, out of it. They were, you know, Kellen was doing push-ups for the crowd. Jackson was dancing around. Catherine was being her kooky, crazy, amazing self. Uh, it, was, it was super fun. And the crowd uh, went bananas. We surprised them with a little message from Kristen Stewart and a uh, live Skype interview with Robert Pattinson that I felt really badly about. The interview, uh, the, the Skype connection, of course, turned out to be horrible. He was buffering in and out like it was like 1992 internet speeds. I don't know what was going on. Uh, Rob uh, joked that he was using budget internet. Uh, I, only, I haven't followed up with Rob and his team. I, I only hope he wasn't frustrated. I hope he felt the love in the room. I think he did. The crowd went crazy. We only were able to make out, I feel like, 30% of what Rob was saying. But uh, it didn't matter. The fact that he made the time to be there, a lot of, you know, I, I get all these crazy tweets, especially about Twilight, because um, it, it just engendered so much passion. People that claim that, that Rob and Kristen, you know, never liked Twilight, that they distanced themselves from it. And I think it really spoke volumes that both of them made the time in their own ways to be a part of the celebration. These guys do love Twilight. They know what it did for them, and they, they love what the fans, uh, how much it meant to the fans. So that was a particular treat for me, given how much I had covered Twilight in my career. So that's New York Comic Con in a nutshell. Uh, I hope you guys, if you made it out in New York, you had a blast. And if you haven't been yet and you have the means, come on out to New York next year. Say hi. It's always fun. Uh, all right, let's move on to the main event. Sam Elliott. Uh, I should say this isn't like, I wouldn't call this like a spoiler conversation, but if you're like adverse to spoilers and want to just go into A Star is Born totally untarnished, maybe wait a second, maybe see the film first. We don't, like I said, we don't talk like nitty gritty spoilers, but we do talk specific scenes of Sam's and allude to things that are happening. Um, and it might just be more um, enjoyable for you if you've seen the film already. So that being said, you could spend uh, 45 minutes doing a lot worse than listening to the delicious voice that is Sam Elliott's. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Please remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused. Spread the good word uh, so that more folks can catch conversations like this. Uh, and in the meantime, here he is, the man, the myth, the legend, Sam Elliott. I'm such an admirer of your work, sir. And, Thanks, Josh. And uh, this film is getting um, the accolades it deserves. This is a special yeah, one. It's, it is a special one, isn't it? Um, I was just telling um, one of your, your gang here, I saw it for the second time last night. Uh, I saw it Toronto first. And in the, in the heat of Toronto, it's like I saw it literally 20 movies right. while I was there. Right. And it's hard to like judge. Uh, and I was very moved the first time. And I think the proof's in the pudding um, when you return to a film. And it, it, yeah. it, it just it packs a while every time I, I see it now. Um, does this, I guess, just give me a sense of sort of, has this happened for you before where a film has resonated in this way? Have you felt this kind of, no. this kind of attention, no. this kind of love? No. 
I mean, I've been fortunate to be involved in a few films that I thought ended up being really nice films. I've never had one that I thought was going to go over the dam in terms of box office like this one is. Yeah. And I've never, I don't think, had one that resonated with me on some levels like this one has. I still carry it, like, right under the surface on an emotional level. Mm. If I start talking about certain elements of it too much or in viewing it, you know, it's ever-present somehow. Yeah. I had some... You know, an opportunity to work with Bradley, who I'd never known before, and get to meet Stephanie and get close with them. Like, if all the cards are right, you have the opportunity to do when you're working on a film, and this one sure fit the bill for that. You I'm, know, I'm I mean, curious, like when you when you at this point, having made as uh, as many films and television projects as you mm-hmm. have, like, do you approach something with optimism or pessimism at this point like, I mean you you know all the cards are there you know Bradley there was no denying that this thing was in the right hands yeah. you know, I mean it's a bold move to make this time this thing a fourth time I think yeah but in Bradley's hands and you know with this fresh take that he had on it and bringing Gaga into it I mean it, it, there was no doubt that this thing was going to be something special it, it, it's it's also bold in kind of its its earnestness. Like it's mm-hmm. it, it's 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 in some ways feels like not a film of these time in these mm-hmm. cynical times, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's sort of it's, what's a, it's a film for this time. That's I guess that, I that, that's true it really because is. it is so because it is stands out an from oddball. yeah. You know, it's a throwback on some levels. Yeah, is that so? Did that strike you in reading the script that this was the heart? This heart was on its sleeve. Well, it's there. I mean, it's it's on the page, but it's in the playing and the in the doing of it that it became what it became. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of stuff that's on the page. You know, it's like there's a long distance from the page to the screen. It's it's a million miles. Yeah. You know, but in, again, in Bradley's hands, you know, this guy is clearly a genius of sorts. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've always, I didn't, I didn't know Bradley. I'd never crossed paths with him. Always admired him as his work as an actor. But now after having worked with him, it's just, it's just very clear. And the guy's got a lot going for him well beyond the acting game. And and he got it out of everybody. He He was responsible for bringing all the actors in, you know, and he's the one that got the performances out of them. He's the one that sets the stage. You know? it, it's it's a it's a film about a lot of things, but it's a film about, I guess, love in all its forms, um, romantic love, and and the love between um, family members. In your mm-hmm. case, between brothers that mm-hmm. um, have a have a quite a past that's alluded to. It's not all spelled out, but like I think, which makes it nice in some way. It leaves absolutely you know, it leaves it to the audience to see what they want to see in it. Yeah. It's clear enough. It's, you know that it's a contentious relationship. And to say the has least. has been for quite a time. Yeah. You yeah. know the dad was a drunk, and you know that Jack was identified with his dad or was close to his dad, more so I than Bobby. Yeah. And you know the mom was gone early on, you know, so... 
and that Bobby, being a, a bit older, had maybe more <laughs> wherewithal to understand like the foibles of the father. Perhaps I don't think I don't think Bobby had any regard at all for the father. Yeah, and I think particularly as he saw his younger brother, I kind of idolized in the dad that. You know, that became a real bone of contention for all of them, yeah. for Bobby particularly. And as, and as, you know, Jack says in the film, you know, you might have had the voice, but you didn't have what it took, you know. You didn't have anything to say, he says. Are, are you Couldn't the, write any lyrics, in other words. A damning yeah. uh, thing to say to an up to a, to a brother. Um, mm. Are you the type of actor that likes to kind of go into backstory and talk it out with a, a director or a writer or on your own to kind of flesh it out, or is it all on the page again? We talked about it. You know, we talked about it before we got there. And the one thing Bradley, he mentions it quite a bit, and I think it comes from his work with Eastwood. And who else? who else did he mention quite a bit? It doesn't even matter at this point. I'm so fogged over from all this <laughs> flapping of my lips. Don't worry, you're still more coherent than I said. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> but the thing that he talked about was, yeah, you come in knowing the material. Yeah. Knowing it cold. Not, you know. Not still and, figuring and it out. That's the way I am. I'm that way. But when you get there, you just throw it all out. Right. And it's really understanding what you're there for. That's 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 where you're going with it. It's like the scene where I drive him home from rehab. It comes at a point in the relationship, you know, and in the story where that arc is pretty much complete. You know what's going on between the brothers. And I think that Bobby probably knows at that stage is that his brother, you know, he may be still hopeful, but I think that he knows his brother is on a collision course at that point. Yeah. And we talked about what we were going to say there, what was said on that drive a number of times. There was more to it. There was more of the driving stuff, which got, you know, cut down right to the what it should have been cut down. Well, that's the thing about that scene, even in the the end of that scene. um, Again, seeing it the second time, like I was struck by like how, how small a moment it is and yet how effective it is. How huge it is at the same time. It's, it's a line and it's a reaction. And I had no idea of how he was going to phrase it. I didn't know what he was going to say. I knew what the intention of it was going to be. I knew where it was going, but I didn't know that he was going to get out there and kind of him and haw. Right. And saying, he almost like dropped that voice that he'd been doing too, I thought, for that second. And oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you what was really interesting about that moment. And I, I was... You know, very cognizant of it or, or enjoyed watching it throughout. You know, I was only there bits and pieces because I came and went. But watching Bradley operate as an actor, director was fascinating. Hmm. And when he got out of the truck, delivered that line in that powerful way that he did, he turned away from the truck and somebody handed him a monitor and all of a sudden he was the director. Just switched it. And he walked around to the front of the truck and was just sitting there looking at me and 
looking at this monitor. <laughs> and I was totally where he was when he left me at that point. <laughs> You're still around, in it. Turned around and tried to back out of that driveway. And it was like, that driveway was like that, man. And that, that truck was miles wide. A big Ram charger with dual wheels. And, you know. <laughs> but that was... It's just to that guy's credit, man. He's a genius. It's amazing. He's a, he's a brilliant filmmaker. The um, another of the scenes, you know, there's the, the the big one of the big confrontations between the two of you. You, you grab his face. Mm. Is that something that's like just happens in the moment? Is that something that yeah, discuss? that happened in the moment. Yeah, that happened in the moment. I went after him. You know, we did that scene. That that was the first day that I worked. That was my toughest job, my toughest day on the job. Because you have to jump right I'd into it. I'd just gotten off the ranch. I'm going to back up even further. There was, there was a moment in time, it was I was on my last week of working on this Netflix thing, The Ranch. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking to Bradley via text, which we did a lot of. And it came down to where I had a major conflict schedule-wise. And I ended up telling him I can't do the movie. It was a week before I was supposed to start. Or actually, the week I was supposed to start, and it was—I you know, literally couldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, they were out at Coachella, they were filming out there. Not like something you can move. <laughs> and yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I was stuck in this show, you know. And it's a show we shoot at five. And we and we work five days a week. We film in front of a live audience on Friday nights. He wanted me to come out there for three days. And I, it was impossible. Yeah. It just wouldn't work. And I just texted him and said, hey, man, I can't ride two horses at the same time. Sorry, but it's not going to work out. And he texted me back and he said, I'm not giving up on you, man. I'm going to work it out. And then the next day they changed the schedule. So cut to the end of that week. I wrapped on the ranch on Friday. On Monday, I drove out to this place. I don't even remember where it was. Got out of a car. It was a giant parking lot. Maybe it might have been out of Santa Anita or one of those tracks somewhere. I think that's where it was. And they had built this encampment, which could have been on the moon. It didn't matter. It was supposed to be at Coachella. And it had all these trailers kind of in a circle, a square with soft edges. <laughs> And then inside that, there was this group of people, just elbow to elbow. I mean, tons of people. Yeah. This is my first moment on the set, man. And I had a fucking speech like that. That'll and, test you. And I walk in there. <laughs> I was already nervous about just dealing with the words. and, and But to walk into that situation, and there were three cameras there, not knowing anyone on the crew, seeing all these extras, and I just uh, all this shit, really. And there's Gaga and Bradley, you know. <laughs> so we worked on it, worked on it. He punched me a half a dozen times. I went to the ground a half a dozen times. There was a lot more to the scene. Really? In the beginning part of it. And it got pretty heated. And Bradley just said, come on, man. He just kept killing me. Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> between every take. and. So it got into that at the end, and I finally just grabbed a hold of him. I said, you know, that's that's when it was in tight. That that's not the first that, take. That's and, once it, you built to that, you got there. Yeah, that yeah, that came down the line. But that's where it was all hidden. And the rest of it was all bullshit. It didn't matter. 
In other <laughs> words, what what happened to the dad and why and all this stuff. There's enough of it there where you get what happened. Right. But it's that eye-to-eye stuff and that angle that, you know, the DP figured out. And that, that stuff in close is as powerful as it can get. Absolutely. And it gave you somewhere to go. First time I saw it, I thought, ugh. It might have been a little over the top. But then when I saw where the rest of the story goes, it's right. It's right that it be that. that Absolutely. Is that the kind of thing like that you can only, that it took you years to get to and that jumping into a project like that and jumping into a situation you just described, that takes, you know, craft and skill and experience. Yeah, it took me a while. I I remember one time I was up in, uh, oh, man. I was up in Canada. I was doing a thing called "You Know My Name." It was a, it was a kind of a Western thing built on a guy named Bill Tillman, who was a, a real life character. And it was a great script. And I had this deal where I had to go into a bar and get up on a table and talk to this mass of people. And I totally went up on it. I just I was sweating and I was just and I'm not a sweater unless I'm working out and then I sweat like a dog but <laughs> it, I just I just got totally lost right I went and told the director I said man I'm fucked I don't know what I'm gonna fucking do and so you know we just went in there and went through it a couple of times and I got back on track but I just got so into my own head that it just and there was no escaping you know I guess that's the and key. And I think it just takes focus. It just yeah. takes, you know, getting out of your own way and you not get overthinking. Out of your own and way, and yeah. you really gotta. You just you gotta know it cold. If you have any hesitation, if, if I'm speaking to myself, sure. there's, there's some people, man. You know, I revel with people or, or totally admire people that can look at a piece of material and say, "Okay, let's, let's do it." You know, that's interesting. <laughs> but I tend to overthink things probably Mm -hmm. always have said you know over the years of it ain't on the page it ain't on the stage you know really kind of adhere to the script and the writer yeah you know he's got his function he wrote a great script but you know so you can you can get in too far and i did on that but this time with bradley it it didn't matter you know it's like I said with Bradley before. I mean, it's like you might as well think you could just throw it out as soon as do what's on the page. You could just throw it all out as long as the right thing comes out. I'm curious, like your perspective on, you know, what where your career has gone in recent years, especially. I mean, I, I like many was a big fan of what you did in The Hero and your work with Brett Haley, Thank you. Um, and. I mean, it could be argued that you're getting some of the best opportunities in kind of yeah, GCS roles. Yeah, it's not an argument. Right? It's just an observation. It's the fucking truth. <laughs> so what do you make of it? I mean, is it just I sort just, of, um, have I they just, come around to you? Have you come around I to the right things? I, I or? think I've just outlived them, you know? I think <laughs> it's like not... a fucking war of attrition, man. There's not a lot of 74-year-old guys around, maybe. I don't know. I don't think that's it. I've just, I've just been lucky. I've just been lucky, and, and there's kind of a, you know, there's a trail between one part to the next, you know. If I talked to you like five years ago, were you... Yeah, it was kind of in there, and I'll tell you where it was. It was, I did this thing on, uh, Jesus Christ, I'm terrible at remembering names. And <laughs> it's all good. There's this goofy thing that's on 
It's an animated thing. Okay. Robot chicken. Yes. <laughs> so I did this thing on robot chicken. It was absurd. And I got nominated for an Emmy for it. <laughs> and I went to the Emmy. I took my daughter. And Lily Tomlin was nominated in the same category mm -hmm. for a voiceover on elephants. It's this thing she did on National History Channel or whatever it okay. was. And we sat behind her. I'd never met Lily before. But after she won the award, I was, you know, got up and gave her a hug and told her how happy I was to meet her and blah, blah. And about six months later, I got a call from a guy named Chris Whites, who... Yeah, Chris was just here, Golden actually. And, you know, I love, I love Chris. And Chris said, my brother's doing this movie with Lily Tomlin, and he, there's a part in it that, would you read the script? And I said, fuck yeah, man. Said, yeah, send it. And here came this script with this chunk in it that was like, man, man, what a part. Mm. So I called him the next day and I said, man, tell your brother I want to sit down with him. And, you know, when, the character was described as having real long hair because he was a biker. He was a biker on page. Mm hmm. But he became not a biker. Right. I didn't have the hair. I went and talked to this gal, Renata, that, you know, builds all of Cher's wigs and has. I was going to get a wig and do all this shit. <laughs> I remember her saying, why? You got beautiful hair. Why would you put a wig on? You know. Anyway, I went back and talked to Paul and said, hey, man, this wig thing and this biker thing, I'm not sure about all this. And he said, it doesn't matter. It didn't have to be a biker. And I ended up what I ended up working on for the for the, the mechanic scene where he walks out of the kitchen and goes, I'm I'm getting out of here. He's got to get out of here. It's all gotten too close for him. He goes outside and he starts working on this plastic Jeep that belongs to his kid. <laughs> and it just happened to be there because we shot that at Paul's house. That job started it. Yeah. Robot chicken started. <laughs> from, from then on, it was... I don't know what the know, lesson is there. It was grandma and grandma, I think, probably led to... What, I'll see you in my dreams. I'll see you in my dreams, yeah. which led to... The hero. The hero. And, and off to the races. Here we are. I don't know where we go from here. It's going to be a tough act to follow. You no, know, <laughs> and it, it, if this is the swan song, I'm good with it. That's please. You know, <laughs> I've said that all the way through... Doing PR on the hero, and I truly felt that way then. Yeah, that was such a gift that Brett gave me, Brett and Mark Bash. Is um, I'm curious. You know, you. It's fascinating to look at your career because, like, you have links to the past that aren't uh, abundant now. You were a contract player yeah. in the studio system, which I can't think of. Yeah, we were. We were a couple of the surviving few I think was that so was that beneficial to actors in your experience was that something to, that was sought after even as it was dying in, in, in your youth or was it something it just that kind of happened on to it yeah it was the first meeting I had the first agent I had was a guy named Dick Bassman the first contact I had in town was a guy named Bob Thompson who was a casting guy at Universal they're both dead now they sent me Dick Baspin sent me to meet a lady named Lillian Gallo 
and Fox, Lillian's dead now. She took me to meet the head of casting, a guy named Dick Jack Bauer. Jack's dead now. <laughs> I did an interview for no, it's like the, a theme, the Sam. two of them <laughs> and Dick Zanuck, who I believe is also dead. Yeah, he's now. definitely not alive. You know, and I got it, got into this thing. But at the time, what was I doing? I was in the construction business, and I was going to a workshop at Columbia Studios, and one of the gals that was there with me went and did that scene with me. It was a scene from Duel and the Sun, you know, a Gregory Peck film. Anyway, it got me in there, and so it was great for me. And the, the program at Fox was pretty much of a joke. Yeah. Nobody worked. There were a few, but, you know... It was mostly run on nepotism and, you know, that kind of stuff. Girlfriends, boyfriends, and family members. Got it. My girlfriend at the time who I met there, Melissa Newman, was of the Newman clan and the music bunch, and she and I were together for 10 years, actually, till I met Catherine. That oh, wow. Was, yeah. So you've said before, and I think it's tr sounds like it's true and maybe... I don't know if it's hyperbole or not, but you talk about your dad not having much regard for your pursuit of acting. None. Zero. So he, he literally told me that classic line, you got a snowball's chance in hell of getting a career, having a career in that town. My dad was a guy that worked for a living. You know, he worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Department of Interior for the federal government. He, he was an Eagle Scout in El Paso, Texas, which I didn't know until he was dead. Never told me that. I was in a Boy Scouts when I was a kid in Sacramento. But he didn't want to hold that over me. That spoke volumes hmm. about my dad, as far as I'm concerned. My mom's the one that told me that he was an Eagle Scout. And he had this big thing, this sash full of merit badges, and he gave it away to some other guy in Sacramento just to get it, you know, get it out of sight. He was a real man's man. I was going to say, because like... Predator and rodent control is what they did. They <laughs> annihilated the coyotes and the wolves and anything else that ate a, a cow or a sheep. That's, that was their world. And they went hunting every year and killed elk. And I went with them a few times. I never was a, never enjoyed killing stuff. I was always a great shot. Never enjoyed killing stuff. So I only went a couple of times with them. Never killed a, never shot any big game. So can you, can you, how do you reconcile where your interest came from in terms of? I, I went to a, there, there was a neighborhood theater and in the beginning, this is kind of where it came from. And, and then there were a couple of influences in my family. But there was a local theater very close to where I used to go look at Saturday matinees all the time when I was growing up in Sacramento. And it was like stuff like, you know, serial films and, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. But I also saw my first John Ford movies there. And I remember the creature from the Black Lagoon, like, just bowled me over. I just thought, how the fuck is that guy doing what he's doing there, the, the creature, <laughs> you know? And I saw <clears throat> the thing, was it Water, whatever the title of that film was a couple of years ago that came out. Oh, the, yeah, The uh, Shape of Water, sure. Yeah, Shape of Water. It just took me right back oh, to totally. that again. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just, I, 
I was real quiet as a kid. I was a loner. Had a little campfire in my backyard. <clears throat> but something about seeing film spoke to me mm. enough to make me think that, that I could do that, that I wanted to do that. So were you able to say that out loud to your dad, or did, no, was that I too never, much? My, my dad only knew because I started getting involved in plays and stuff. I never verbalized that to him. And then not until later on, way down the road, when I was in high school. My dad died when he was 54. I was 18. So he never uh, saw it. He never, yeah, saw. he never saw any of it. And then, oddly enough, over the years, I've run into people on sets. One time I was doing some Falstaff beer commercials, and... Nevada, a place called Fernley, Nevada, and this guy that was wrangling the horses. That's one of those moments that just gets me. Yeah. This guy looks up at me and says, Are you Shorty Elliott's son? Nobody called my dad Shorty, except for people in El Paso. And I said, Yeah, I am. He said, your dad was a great man. And that took me back, you know. It still takes me back. Because a lot of people, and a lot of people think, oh, your dad was such a hard case and this and that. But he gave me such a gift. Yeah. I spent the, my youth growing up in Sacramento when I was in the Sierras all the time, fishing and traveling with those kind of men and they were great examples they all treated women with great respect yeah you know well that's what you bring to i think all of your roles which i think people so appreciate is this kind of yeah. just inherent um, groundedness yeah. and respect and my mom was on the, totally on the other side my mom lived to be 97 my mom was a you know she was a school teacher when she in her later years, but she was a crack athlete. She went to school at the University of Texas at El Paso and grew up one of nine kids born, born in a place down around Uvalde, Texas, a place with a dirt floor in it. You know, came from extreme poverty, grew up during the Depression. Yeah. Went to college, married my dad the day after she graduated from college and moved to this fucking little podunk place out out of Marfa, Texas, out in the middle of nowhere. And I always thought made probably a huge sacrifice in doing that and just I don't think she was ever very happy hmm. in some ways, my mom. I think she was happier after <laughs> I started rolling along in my career and we start we spent a lot of time Coming and going in Hollywood, I took her on locations. She to must Europe have gotten such a kick out of it, yeah. She talked to newspapers about it. And <laughs> she was proud. She was a proud mom. She'd be tickled by what's going on now. Absolutely. She would have hated Robot Chicken because I said fuck so many times. In it. <laughs> she she hated the Big Lebowski <laughs> because of the language in it. And I said, I didn't swear once. She said, it doesn't matter. Everybody else was. <laughs> <laughs> Who, um, who are your contemporaries growing up? When you, in terms of like your acting contemporaries, are, are there any that I would know that have that kind of? Tom Selleck and I started at exactly the same place at the same time under contract to Fox. Really? Yeah. And we did a couple of films together. 
something in the mustache water. We grew the, the f- first mustaches in that time. You know, I mean, <laughs> this was after the '60s when everybody had hair down to their navel and hair all over their faces. But there weren't a lot of beards around the, at that time when Tom and I started growing them. And then I started growing my hair long. I always had long hair when I was a kid. Mm. I was in the National Guard, and I'd, had, I'd go to the National Guard to go to the meetings, and I'd put on a short-haired wig over my long hair. <laughs> it was a trip. So what, your Golden Compass character is like the closest look to your youthful Sam Elliott? Didn't he have a, he had a mane on him, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah, there, there was, <laughs> I did a show called Wild Times, and my hair was still dark, and I had this perfect, like, it was like a flowing mustache. It wasn't wasn't a ragged one. It was totally. It was like the. It was like a perfect mustache. <laughs> I actually think that that's why I got hired to do masks. Cher had a, got a hold of one of those pictures. And it, it was it was a great look. <laughs> she thought, Ah, oh, there's my biker. Um, there's so much to talk she to. She might disagree with that. <laughs> I'll follow up with her. Um, we can't obviously hit everything, so I'm going to bounce around a little bit. But yeah. like, I'm, I'm curious, like, your perspective on, you know, you've been in the business for about about 50 years now, yeah. and uh, you've been doing press for about 50 years now. And I'm curious, like, I've heard you talk about the good and the bad that went with the the big kind of feature film launch, which was Lifeguard, mm. um, uh, and the insanity of how that was marketed versus what you thought you were making. Yeah. Um, I really shot myself in the foot on that. Go ahead. Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, though, like, because <clears throat> you, you've been very frank in talking about that. You feel like you were... You were too open about... I was honest. You were too honest. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, I'm not afraid to be honest. I can tell. You know, <laughs> I've been honest, I think, pretty much across the board. I, don't, I think deceit is just a shithole to get in, you know. I mean, well, it takes like, more effort. There's, there's no, <laughs> no, there's, it's a no-win situation. Yeah. Because it's going to come back at you at some point. So specifically, yeah. what got you... You thought you got a, had a bad reputation uh, at Dan some point. Petrie, a guy named Dan Petrie, who was a really well thought of director. Yeah, directed some brilliant stuff. Directed that film, and a guy named Ron Clausel wrote the script. Anyway, we do this story, and it's really kind of a coming of age story about this guy that's torn between succumbing to all the pressure from people saying, "When are you going to get off the beach, man? When are you going to get off the beach?" I know people that are lifeguards. My parents were both lifeguards in El Paso, Texas, at a place called Washington Park. I have friends that have been in the county and the city lifeguard service for years. It's like being in the police department. It's an admirable profession. This character, Rick Carlson, was a lifeguard and didn't want to be anything else. Right. So then the, the, the movie comes out, the one-sheets, a picture of me in a pair of Speedos and a big busted girl on either arm. There were no big busted girls in the movie. Right. You know, it was Kathleen Quinlan and Ann Archer were the two ladies. It was Kathleen's first film. I went on the press trail. In those days, you carried press kits with you, or they were that thick, and there were fucking boxes of them that would go with us on these things. Invariably, you'd go into these situations, and it was like a day here, a day here, a day here right. in those days. It wasn't come and do it and junk it in one spot. Has its pros and cons. <laughs> you'd go in, the person you're going to meet with the next day sees the movie that night, 
and invariably, you know, I'd say 90% of the people that I interviewed with would start the interview with, this movie isn't anything like I thought it was going to be, based upon what they'd seen. And I said, yeah, I know. You know, and, and set you off, and then you could you could talk for a few minutes on that one. I'm forever, sure, <laughs> forever, and did, and you know, never worked at Paramount again. And by your choice, and or there by their choice, there was a couple of characters there. There was a char- couple of characters there that imposed themselves upon me for various reasons, <laughs> and I also said how I felt about that at the time. You know. I have a lot of gay friends, please don't misunderstand that, but it's like when somebody pushes themselves upon you, then, you know, mm-hmm. no thanks. So Bob you- Thompson, Dick Bassman, those guys were both gay as well, and there were guys involved in the beginning of my career. I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you without them. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not about that. It's about presentation. Right. You know. Where are you at right now in terms of honesty and in, in in the press? Like, if you if you and Bradley for whatever reason hadn't gotten along on this one, would you have? Would you say that? I mean, is that something that like have you learned your lesson way back when from the lifeguard, no, or is it? No, I'm still pretty pretty honest. I got nothing to hide. Yeah, I don't feel like I have anything to hide. Yeah. You know, if I'm going to sit here and talk about that, what I just talked about, then, you know, which I probably shouldn't even mention to anybody, but right. what the fuck. In this world we're in, you know, it's true. I mean, it's like no holds barred on some level, and I've, I've conducted myself in, a, in a, as far as I'm concerned, a upright manner, and you know, I thank my parents for that. And I, I got nothing to hide. Yeah, nothing and to it, apologize like for. Yeah. What you see is what you get, and you know, if you got to bullshit people to get ahead, then I don't want to get ahead. Right. It's uh, been a great run, and like I said, if this is this one song, then it's okay. Uh, a couple more to hit. You mentioned Mask, which uh, still holds up as an exceptional piece of work from Peter Bogdanovich and you and Cher yeah, and Eric Stoltz. Peter. Just love Peter. What was the? I'm just curious about the environment on the set of that. Uh, of that, like it was contentious. Because yeah, Peter, th- there are Peter stories and of him Peter and Cher, Cher right? Their rub. You know, Cher was a pretty strong gal. You know, particularly at that time, man, she was pretty feisty. Mm-hmm. But it was an incredible thing for me. I mean, it was just, that, that thing came so out of the blue. I was doing a Yellow Rose with Sybil Shepherd, who was Peter's girlfriend. I went into a makeup trailer one morning, and Sybil says, I saw Peter last night. He said, he's doing this thing with Cher, and he's looking for a Gary Cooper on a motorcycle. <laughs> so I threw your name in. I said, oh, thanks. You know, thinking, sure. And then I'm, I don't know, it was a couple of weeks later, I was over in Hawaii getting married, and Catherine and I were on our honeymoon, and I got a call from my agent, Ron Meyer, and he said, Peter wants to meet you on this movie he's doing. And I said, well, what, can I come and see him when I get back? No, he wants to see you, like, tomorrow or the next day. And I said, Ronnie, I'm on my honeymoon, man. What the fuck? <laughs> so I said, no, I can't make it. Like an agent would do. <laughs> Don't let a honeymoon get in the way I mean, of business. Ronnie knew me anyway <laughs> by then. He knew I was, again, say what I feel. And right. Blah, blah. 
But unbeknownst to me, I told Catherine about it, and she went up to this place. We're staying at a place called the Kona Village, which isn't even on the map anymore. It got wiped out in the tsunami, the big one. But she went up there and called from the desk, called Ron Meyer, and said, I'll get him back. And we ended up going back, and I had the meeting. and That worked out. It was an amazing set to be on. Yeah. To, see, to see Peter and Laszlo Kovacs. A great cinematographer. Oh, holy shit. It was like watching Bradley and the cinematographer on this thing. It was yeah. just, you know, it was to see a director and a cinematographer so in concert, it's just a, a lovely thing to watch. So I, instructive or so, yeah. you know, it's incredible. How much did uh, Lebowski change your audience? Do you feel like you like found a new kind of stoner appreciation yeah, probably, kind of a thing? Probably. I don't know. I think I've got a pretty diverse audience because I've done a lot of different kind of films. I've yeah. been really lucky the stuff that's come my way. I mean, I've done lots of films that spoke to kids, that spoke to children, you know, and older people at the same time. But yeah, maybe the Big Lebowski is different. The irony of the Big Lebowski is I was down in uh, in Texas doing a picture with John Milius. It was a, a, a television thing. It was like four or six hour thing for TNT called the Rough Riders. I feel like Tom, that, that's Tom, like a two hour conversation I want to have about John Milius another time. Yeah, He's I'd a love, character. I'd He's... love to have that one too <laughs> with you. Anyway, I get this script, and it's I know that it's from the Coen Brothers. And I was so excited to get, it came to the set. I was so excited to get off the set and go back and read it. Because I was there doing yet another Western and I thought, aha, I'm finally gonna shake this fucking Western thing. <laughs> and I get in the room and I start reading it. And the first page, there's something about a voiceover sounding not unlike Sam Elliott. <laughs> and in the background is playing tumbling tumbleweeds. <laughs> And I just thought, what the fuck? <laughs> and then when he shows up, here's this drugstore cowboy looking guy looking not unlike Sam Elliott. And I thought, wow. <laughs> you know? But at that moment was when I stopped grousing about being boxed into the right. Western thing. If you're going to do I it. I just realized how great it had been to yeah. me. I'm, I'm shocked you and Quint have never crossed paths in a, in a film yeah, over the years. Yeah, me too. I'm often sorry about that. Some, somebody told me one time, Clint Eastwood's never going to put you in one of his movies. <laughs> for, for, I mean, the guy was so matter-of-fact about it, and I thought, well... Your manliness might come, blow Clint's manliness off the screen. I, I, don't, I don't really know what it was. <laughs> it somehow made sense to me then. It's never made sense to me since. Tried to get him to direct a Louis L'Amour thing that my wife and I did, a thing called right. Conniger one time. And we went out kind of to him, but he was, you know. I met him one time. Met his son-in-law recently. His son-in-law was a woodcarver, a, a chainsaw woodcarver, and a, an artist, huh. not just a woodcarver. This guy's an artist, and he carved a Smokey the Bear for me. Amazing. Stacy. Um, one or two other things before I let you go. Um, I, I, a film that I feel is somewhat underappreciated. I really enjoyed you and the film uh, The Contender. Uh, you and Jeff Bridges, I yeah. believe Rod Lurie directed it. Yeah. Um, a change, definitely a change of pace. Like that, talking about not that being was, boxed and that in. Was a, that was an intentional thing. And that was like, that followed the big Lebowski. Yeah. Oddly enough. And I couldn't figure out really how I fit into that because it was this. Washington story. Right. 
And I remember talking to Rod. I said, "What's how do how do you see me? How do I fit into this? How do I play the chief of staff to the president?" He said, "I don't know." And he said, "I was watching the Big Lebowski the other night, and I just want to see you more of you and the dude." <laughs> And, and he was like, I didn't know if he was serious or not, but anyway, he wrote this thing. I wore three-piece suits. I shaved my mustache off, cut my hair off. And then we got to the set, and I said, so you want me to make an effort to get rid of this south-in-the-mouth thing that Dan Petrie used to always call it when we were doing lifeguard? You're sounding a little south-in-the-mouth. Do you do that again? I'll try to get rid of it. Anyway, Rob said no. He said no, man. He said Chief of Staff, but you're from Texas or you're from the Southwest or somewhere. Contender was fun. Fell in love with Joan Allen on that. Oh, what an actor. Man, just killed me. She just killed me. Amazing. I remember one day on the set, we, there was a, there was this, we had this really sweet little piece where we were pretty, pretty heated up. There was a long break between the setup and the filming of it. I think we rehearsed it a couple of times. Everybody left the set, and Joan and I both stayed there and just glared at each other. Not really glaring, just chucking each other out, sizing each other up. And we came back in. They finally, it was like 20 minutes or something, we were just sitting there looking at each other. And then out of that came one of my favorite films and favorite working experiences on Off the Map Okay, yeah, with yeah. Joan. That just came up recently. Was J.K. Simmons in that as well? Yes. Yeah, I just ran into J.K. Played my boyfriend in it. And he was, my, he was talking my, about my, it. My boyfriend, but my solid amigo. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was, he's in Jason Reitman's new film, and I ran into him at, uh, yeah. at something for that. Love Jason. Of course, you've worked with Jason as well. Um, there's never enough time, and, and hopefully you'll come back on the next one. I'd like uh, to. Um, this has been... Uh, it's always fun to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Hey, I appreciate your work, man, and I appreciate Thanks, your man. honesty and your forthrightness, and, and most of all, just um, what you've contributed to, uh, to cinema. Like, I'm, uh, as you can Thanks, tell, I'm a Josh. fan. Very kind. And congrats on the film. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>